lake house in autumn. There's silence in the house at summer's wake. The last leaves fall in one night's wind. The mice are eaten, and the cats begin a numbing sleep. There's nothing much at stake. It's not quite cold enough to stoke the furnace, and the neighbors never seem to mind if leaves are raked. I'm staring through a blind at less and less beside a cooling lake. I keep forgetting that this absence too must be imagined. What is still unknown is still beyond me, as with you. The mind is darker, deeper than a wind-blown lake that tries to mirror every hue of feeling as the season takes me down. Welcome, and thank you for joining me for another episode. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. We hear many voices sounding the alarm about our relationship with nature. Throughout history, I believe it has been the poet who has had the longest and often deepest relationship with nature. The poet's words have often changed the way we think of the natural world. So when I started this podcast, I knew that one of the voices I wanted to share with my audience was that of the poet. I also knew that it was Jay Perini, poet, author, professor, and friend, whom I wanted to talk with. So recently, Jay took some time from his busy schedule to talk with me about the poet's nature. Hello, Stefan. How's this working? How's the podcast working? Are you able to get it around to some people? I am. It's doing really well, actually. I, I get people from around the world listening to it. Because one of the things I'm trying to do with it is to show people that our relationship with nature is as diverse as nature itself. I'm having lots of different people talk about it, like yeah. yourself, and how important all those different relationships are. I've got a memoir coming out, which is about my travels in the Highlands of Scotland in 1970 with the old blind writer Jorge Luis Borges. Borges and I traveled and all through the Highlands, just the two of us. It was an amazing experience. Yeah. Oh, oh extraordinary. And, uh, you know, Borges kept saying to me, tell me what you see. I'm blind. You be my eyes. And I would say, oh, there's some trees and there's a field. He says, that's inadequate. Don't do that to me. Think of poor old Borges, so blind. Talk to me. Be real. Be specific. I think our relationship with nature is changing very rapidly. And I don't think we totally understand it. That is why I think the poet's voice is so important in our conversations. Historically, poetry has had a long relationship with nature. Why do you think that is, and how is it changing? And that's a great question, Stefan, and I really do think that you've got nailed something here in suggesting that it's the poets who had their finger on the pulse of the relationship between human beings and nature really early on, and the evolving shift in the relationship to nature 
really first was manifested and and became vivid and crucial in in the poets. You know, poets have always loved nature. You go back to Greece and Rome, you have the, what were called the bucolic, or the pastoral poets, and these were often poets like, say, in Rome, Horace uh, uh, or Theocritus in Greece, poets who often were from the city and would go into the countryside, and they were upper-class people for the most part, and they looked around, they saw trees and grass and cows and shepherds, and they were quite moved by this, but really they were pastoral poets who were not really writing out of a deep and profound and symbolic understanding of nature. So I think that that classical view of nature you know, there's very, I mean, it's a very complex subject, but there are, the the general view I have of, of the classical attitude toward nature was, was essentially nature is refreshing, it's it's beautiful, it's a way to get away from society, and, and, and you appreciate the glories of the natural world, but almost in a picturesque way. In the 18th century, of course, 17th and 18th century in in Europe, you got a big revival of this classical sense of nature, and there was an admiration for nature as beauty. And so the painters would do a pretty landscape with a cow sitting in the middle of a field or a tree. English painters just say Gainsborough or something. Or earlier, you know, a lot of the, even Italian painters and poets of the painters of the Renaissance, nature was was a backdrop always a backdrop, but a beautiful, refreshing, lovely backdrop. And then something magical happened in the end of, well, I say the end of the 18th century, really, when the Romantic movement, which completely shifted everything, and really we're still in the Romantic movement. We're only having modifications of the Romantic movement even now. And then Romanticism, remember, was a kind of, intellectual and, you know, artistic movement. So it was a reactionary response to the fact that nature had become scientific and rationalized in the 18th century. And it wasn't simply a, a response to the rationalization of the Enlightenment, but it was also a kind of response to the material changes in the world. And the end of the 18th century is when you have suddenly the Industrial Revolution changing everything. You cities are growing suddenly like cancer, and poverty is massively increased. You get slums, people moving in from the countryside to make money, coming into the cities all over Europe and, and even in America. So you have the massive sudden growth of cities, and then with it came the, the use of fossil fuels and the massive pollution. I mean, Britain became suddenly enveloped, just to take Britain, with the industrialization in the north, Britain became... In, in London, Britain became absolutely enveloped in a kind of a thick fossil fuel fog, which didn't really um, ease until the mid-20th century. And the pollution of these cities continues just to be a sore on the landscape. And you see the poets responding to it, you know, Wordsworth especially, Coleridge, Keats, and Shelley. Uh, they saw nature as being degraded and despoiled, and the environment was being ruined. Uh, as these cities expanded to, you know, crazy sizes, they became centers for deprivation and pollution. And so the poets went on, in many ways, on the attack here. And they regarded this whole business of industrialization as wildly 
undesirable and leading to a kind of degradation of the human spirit. And that's still where we are today. You know, according to the romantics, the solution always was back to nature because nature was seen as pure, uh, a place where one could, could return to and find cultural renewal and, and resources that were going to lead you into a new way of living. And so Wordsworth, Keats, and Shelley were, were completely, I mean, these are, these are the original poets of nature. And then in, the, in, in America, at the same time, more or less, you had the great prophet of nature. And I think he's still to, today the greatest prophet we have in America, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He published his book called Nature, it's a long essay, 19, in 1836. And there he says, nature is the symbol of spirit. And all natural signs in the world are signs of spiritual facts. And so it was Emerson who explicitly then took European philosophy and, and applied it to the natural world, especially coming out of an American landscape and an American sense of nature. And Wordsworth and Emerson living in Concord, Massachusetts, went walking in the woods. His, 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 his um, pupil, best friend, babysitter, and protege was, was Henry David Thoreau. And uh, with Emerson and Thoreau, you really do have the kind of re reconception of nature, which we have to this day as, as a restorative, more than just a restorative place, it's the answer. Nature is now seen as the answer. And it's the answer to pollution. It's the answer to dehumanization. And it's, an, it's the answer to the alienation that's, that industrialization has produced. And I think we're still struggling with that. In the 20th century, we saw the poets... Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot writes The Wasteland. You know, he's struggling in the city, writing city landscapes, trying to think where is nature in all of this. You know, Wallace Stevens was essentially an Emersonian writer, going back to extending the romantic tradition. Right up to the present time, you know, I think poets are, are constantly grappling with the natural world, trying to understand how to get beyond the alienation of the urban landscape. The alienation produced by the spoiling of the natural world, and the fossil fuel industry has been, you know, at the core of all this. So it's so so you you get the the conservation movement and the modern environmentalist movement essentially arising out of the romantic movement in poetry and in drama and in thinking and philosophy. So what are we losing in ourselves and our culture? as we lose more and more of the natural world. Are we losing the human spirit? You know, we, we, we're losing, I mean, when we lose, uh, lose nature, when nature becomes hidden or despoiled, what we, what we lose is a connection to our deepest spiritual natures. I mean, I don't think we can thrive spiritually without understanding our relationship to the natural world. And even wildness, not just the natural world, but wildness. That's why we need wild places, why we need woods. We can't just find nature in a city park. It doesn't work to walk, just walk into Central Park in New York City. That's not going to take, take us to the spiritual place we need to go to. So nature keeps reminding us uh, the, uh, about the spiritual depth. And I think we have to understand that there is, as Emerson said, a correspondence between the spiritual life and the natural world. And, and understanding that connection is what it means to be human. We are part of nature. And the degree to which we despoil nature is the degree to which we despoil human nature. The poet expresses him or herself through language. Yeah. 
And some say that as we lose more and more of the natural world, that our language is at risk. Well, again, I would go back to Emerson's nature. He says all natural facts, tree, bush, rock, flower, all natural facts, grass, lithographs, are signs of spiritual facts. Nature is the symbol of spirit. And so as we despoil um, nature, we despoil our language. And so the language itself becomes bureaucratic, becomes abstract, becomes unfresh, the opposite of fresh, whatever that would be, uh, essentially. And so we, we do see that, that, that despoilation of our language in the language of, say, the, the popular press. And the language that's used is, is just really horrendously limited. And so words are not being used to excavate human feeling. They're very much superficial and so dependent upon cliché. Orwell warned us about this in his brilliant essay on the, on the English language and how, um, you know, when we move toward cliché and we move toward uh, the, the kind of industrialization of prose, and language, we move away from the more fine gradations of the human spirit. And so it's a grave danger to us, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm really wor- I really worry about where this whole culture is going. And by culture, I mean Western culture mostly. I don't know about Eastern culture enough to say. So as a poet, how do you see our relationship with nature moving forward? You know, I think that the poet has to increasingly be an alarm sounder. I don't think there's anything for it, but to you express, I mean, poetry expresses two things, joy and sorrow, or gladness and grief. And it's in, it's in, it's in the embodiment of these two basic human emotions with a million fine gradations that we can find the world of poetry. I mean, we, we need poets to uh, just express the little moments of joy that one can experience in the natural world and we need poets to sound the alarm saying, we're being ruined. We're in danger. Uh, alarm. It's like, you know, you know, the whole house, and the house is the human soul. Has a, I think at the moment, the, the, anybody who's alert and has a house of a soul knows that the fire alarm is ringing in the house. In every single room, it's screaming. And so that's, the poet has to respond to the fact that the human soul is, is I think, in agony right now. People are miserable. People are so depressed. And, you know, and this pandemic that we have in the world is, is in many ways uh, feels somehow like a response to the fact that we've despoiled nature to such a degree. We've overcrowded ourselves. We've overcrowded our cities. Where did this terrible virus come out of? But the kind of uh, overcrowding in China and the misuse of food resources. I mean, it's all very much connected. And, and the pandemic seems to me a kind of physiological response to a spiritual condition. What is the role of the poet in our discussions about how we must change our approach to nature and the fact that our survival depends on it? Well, look how Wordsworth and Coleridge and Shelley and Keats were able to absolutely change an entire culture in Britain and Europe. You know, um, they were able to refocus attention on the natural world in the most astonishing ways and at least explain things going on. So the poet's job is partly simply explanatory, saying, look, here's what's going on. Look at this situation. Open your eyes. I mean, poets are just saying over and over again, open your eyes. I mean, Hopkins begins a great poem. Look up, look at the skies. See the 
fire folks sitting there, stars in the heavens. Open up your eyes, look around at what's happening. So you're driving down the street and you're seeing a beautiful field being completely plowed under with tarmac and then building these terrible shopping centers. And so commercialization, again, just growing and dizzyingly smothering the natural world. It is so depressing. I remember as a child, I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I just remember seeing the beautiful fields outside of Scranton where I grew up being blacktopped and horrible shopping centers being going up everywhere and big box stores. I mean, this is the end of nature and this is the end of the human spirit. And so people are reduced to being consumers. They're no longer human beings in interaction with nature. They're consumers. Might you address how freedom, justice, and nature are all connected? I do think that there is no justice without economic justice. And I do think that the extreme urbanization of the world, which has been driven by the need for capital profit, has actually so damaged the human individual, the, the spirit. All of these things, human freedom is so connected to justice and economic justice. I mean, I think that uh, when, you, when you think about what's happened to, to, to the working man in the world, decade by decade by decade, the working man and women are losing any purchase they once had in the world. And in the 19th century, the working man and working women were forced into factories. And they had to stand in line and they had to be involved in the kind of alienating work of the factory. For the most part, this alienating work of the factory still goes on because people are still making widgets and we consume vast numbers of widgets. For the most part, this is now done in sweatshops in Asia. Terrible to think about the way we in the West, to some degree, if you can call it benefit, benefit from the fact that everything in our house is made in, in a sweatshop somewhere far away, everything on our bodies. Uh, the sweat, sweaters we were, were wearing, the shoes we were wearing were, were, made, were made far away and by people in extremely impoverished and humanly despoiled situations. But it's not only that. Even in our own country, you look around and look at the occupations people have, you know, working in a big Amazon sweatshop, sending out widgets around the country and, and people driving trucks all day long on the road, polluting the world, airplanes zooming around, carrying these widgets to people's houses over and over again. So the houses fill up with these terribly de demoralizing gadgets. You know what I mean? There's a gadget for everything. And so, you know, that hasn't gone away. I don't think until we get a rational economy where people have real work and people continue to have access to the natural world, people are still going to live in cities. But, they, but I mean, look at the cities are now dangerous because just because of viruses and pollution is going to kill us. And so people are going to have to have access to the natural world. The preservation of wilderness becomes more and more um, crucial. And not just for recreation, for spiritual sustenance. It's not recreation. So how has your relationship with nature changed over the years? If I look at it in the broadest, simple terms, I grew up in a polluted industrial landscape where all around me was the product of, of the mining industry. And so the, the river beside my house, the Lackawanna River, I wrote a poem back when I was like 25 years old. It began, here is a river lost to nature, running it in its dead canal, scumming its banks. The pollution of the anthracite mining fossil fuel industry had simply destroyed one of the most beautiful sylvan 
I mean, it was Penn's Sylvania, William Penn's beautiful forest that was despoiled by the fossil fuel industry in the early 20th century. And I grew up when it, the despoiling had finally reached the peak. And, you know, the mines were everywhere around us, and they were now more or less emptied of coal, and miners were broke. Mining had become absolutely lethal. My dear uncle, Gene, was killed in the mines on the very day, June 10th, 1966, that I graduated from high school, leaving behind six children and, an, and a wife who could never cope again. So I'm vividly aware of the effects of the industrial fossil fuel industry on the, on the lives of working people. So in my own life, I fled that world and moved to New England because I had a vision of nature, which was in many ways inculcated in me by reading Robert Frost when I was in junior high school. And I wanted to go live in Vermont. And I made a trip to Vermont, made my parents take me up to Vermont, New Hampshire when I was a kid. And I said to myself, that's where I want to live. And I, and I aimed uh, that is a bullseye and landed there. So I've been kind of lucky. I'm now sitting in a farmhouse, 1850s farmhouse in Vermont. As I'm talking to you, I'm looking out my windows and I see nothing but woods. So I've kind of been able by, to be one of the few lucky ones that, that because of my career, so, shall we call it, was able to land in a spot where I could live in some proximity to natural resources. So where do you go to find inspiration? I step outside my farmhouse door and I go walking in the woods nearby. And believe me, there's more inspiration there than I could ever devour in 12 lifetimes, if not 1,200 lifetimes. How do you see the future? I see it as being uh, very grim because I don't think that in a post-industrial world, I think late capitalism is probably going to crush the world unless people revolt and have a very, very strong response. I'm mildly hopeful at the moment that at least there is protest. There is the sense of, of angst is at least on the people's faces. Nobody's happy. Maybe the environmentalist movement is going to catch fire as it's been doing. I've got a great colleague, Bill McKibben, who's sounding the alarms and brilliantly doing so. Uh, I think there's glimmers of hope. It's on the sad ashes of, of what was civilization that we're talking here. Even the educational system is in sad state. So every, everything is in a very grim state right now. So, you know, uh, but I am always hopeful because I think that the, not, not the, the human spirit, shall we say, has a lot of resources itself. And, and maybe it can connect to what's left of nature. So I think there's plenty of people around who have a sturdy sense of who they are and what they need. And let's hope that these people light the way uh, down the future a little bit for us. You know, I, I think that people who write poetry are, are, are the sanest people on earth. I think in san when people go to a shrink, they're miserably unhappy because they've got a word scramble in their heads. The language that they have access to doesn't mirror any sense of real reality around them. And poetry is simply a way of, of picturing the world with some accuracy. It's, it's a way of digging in, using language as an excavation of reality. I mean, it's finding a language that's somehow adequate to experience. Poetry is simply a language adequate to experience. 
And most of us have a language that's inadequate. And so that's hence we go to shrinks, hence we read, turn in the newspaper, read, open the newspapers, turn on our computers, read, 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 look, desperately searching for language that in some way mirrors our confusion, our hopes, our dreams, and so forth. So the poet's work is, is so crucial right now because poetry, as I said, mirrors the exactness of the natural world and its detail. And so poetry is a way of finding um, an accurate language. The poets are the sanest people in the world, and they are the ones who are often, <laughs> they feel alienated for obvious reasons, but they're pointing a way toward a, a way of talking that is going to reflect the complexity of what's, what's living, what's in front of us all the time. If there's any hope, it's going to be in finding the right words in, in the right order. That's the only hope there ever is, finding the right words and get in the right order. Thought, well, I would end with a poem of joy and a, and a moment of satisfaction that I got sitting out in the natural world. And uh, I think that's one of the things poetry gives us, that joy. For many years, I would go up in the summer, I still do quite often, to Breadloaf, which is eight miles away, a mountain in Vermont where Robert Frost lived. And um, his house up there is always, to me, a place of huge inspiration. And I remember it was very much the end of summer. It was late August. And I, I sat outside. It was raining all afternoon. And then suddenly, as it does in England, the sky cleared with a kind of a whoosh. It was like a screech blue sky. And, but everything was turning yellow for the most part, as it does after rain sometimes. It was getting dusk. And so I wrote this poem called Rain Before Nightfall. Late August. And the long, soft hills are wet with light. A silken dusk, with shifting thunder in the middle distance. Chills of fall have not yet quite brought everything to ruin. And I stop to look, to listen under ease. The yellow rain slides down the lawn. It feathers through the pine, makes lilacs glisten, all the waxy leaves. The air is almost fit for drinking, and my heart is drenched. My thirst for something more than I can see is briefly quenched. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Nature Revisited and our conversation with Jay Perini. If you enjoyed this, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. You can also subscribe to Nature Revisited on your podcast server. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. If you would like to support Nature Revisited or share your thoughts, comments, please visit NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. And I hope you will join me for our next episode. And until then, please remember... We are nature.